It's not just like this decision. I'm gonna commit to this shot. Like that's too simple. Like it needs to be far deeper than that. And welcome back. Welcome aboard another part train. I'm one of your co-hosts, Evan Singer. I got my partner in crime, Matt Cermak, with me. What's up, Av? Great to be back. We just had one of our favorite guests, I think, John Sherman from Practical Golf on the pod return oh, yeah. for the second time. Before we get to that, guys, if your golf game's off the rails, if you're sick of riding that struggle bus, you come to the right place. The part train helps frustrated golfers enjoy the ride again, because if you can learn to smile through bad golf, you can smile through anything. We unpack the mental game with tour pros, authors like today with John, sports psychologists, and everyday golfers like you and me to make the hardest game in the world feel easy and help you finally get back on track. This episode of The Part Train, like every episode, is presented by our friends at Rollback Activewear. Cermak's wearing the polo and the vest right now, his special. I'm wearing the hoodie, my special. But guys, they are launching new styles faster than, I don't know, what's an example of things that just get launched all the time over and over again? Well, it's the prints, Ev. I mean, it's the polo prints are always changing. There's always a new theme. How are they coming up with all these ideas? They're coming up with new sh- polos and and new gym shorts. They got new gym shorts, different styles, they different colors too. Shorts. Oh, by the way, this is the everybody needs to go do this. The khaki everyday short by Roback, game changer. Okay, I just got one. You can wear that to anything. It just looks like a nice pair of khaki shorts. You can work out in them. You can match them with a polo and go play golf if yep. you untuck. I mean, you can do anything with those shorts. So that's what oh, I would yeah. recommend is my latest pick. Polos, shorts. Go to Roback.com, guys. Enter the code TRAIN. Get 15% off. Hop aboard that Roback train. I'm telling you, everybody that sees me wear Roback are like, oh, yeah, I see that a lot. And I'm like, have you gotten any? They're like, no, I've been meaning to. I'm like, use this as your excuse. You deserve it. Now Father's I play with Day. on Wednesday. Father's Day. Just got my first rowback. Yeah, Father's Day is perfect. Father's Day. Do it. Get dad rowback. It's the easiest gift, okay? I find that dads don't spend the money that they should on comfortable, good clothes. They all got the, like, the hard, the not form-fitting, the, like, the not flexy. Yeah. Fairway and greens, yeah. Like, let's get, let's get our dad something they deserve because they're not going to buy it for themselves. So, rowback.com, enter the code TRAIN, 15% off for Father's Day. Okay. John Sherman, like we talked about, we love having people on the second time because we can dig in on something. And we really used today to dig in on commitment. And the show didn't go necessarily exactly how I thought it would, but maybe even for the better. I think John dug into a lot of different concepts that leads to commitment. Maybe not in a way that you'd expect. He talks a lot about simplifying. We even talked about Roy McElroy and how different things can lead to commitment maybe in a way that you wouldn't think. The theme might be the, the simple plan, right? Because he's really focused on target. And we had a lot of interesting examples we provided to him, right? Situational out there about, you know, getting up and just being aggressive and not thinking versus having a plan, but you're too caught up, you know, in the water or the OB. And he really talks us through how to manage that. And I have, you know, th- this is a really cool episode. Obviously we're kind of centered around commitment and having a simple plan, but he talks about his struggles. You know, he's yeah. an incredible story, right? His journey to being scratch. And he's a plus 1.9. He's an incredible player, but it's, it's, there's a lot of ups and downs. And he's had some recent big time downs. So, you know, like you said, it's always eye-opening to see a scratch player struggle. And it's just 
just how it is, right? So some well, I really think, good stuff from John there. I'm glad you brought that up because I think a lot of people, I say this at the end of the episode, assume that a plus two doesn't experience what they experience on the golf course in regards to fear, maybe anxiousness over the swing, worried you're going to lose it all, you know, embarrassment in front of others. I mean, John has written the number one book in golf this past year on Amazon is growing a great audience in regards to strategy and managing and getting the most out of your game. And he's going through the chipping yips right now has been through putting yips and yeah. had the shanks like a year ago. So I like what he said. It's, he's not above yeah. any of it. And at the end, definitely stay to the end because it's, we talk about how to let that stuff not impact us as much. And I think this episode will help a lot of people. And on that note, he did you guys a big solid. Okay. Four foundations oh, yeah. of golf is his book. It's 400 plus pages. If you don't want to read 400 plus pages, he just created an online video series, which basically condenses it into a few hours. And it's four foundations of golf.com, I believe. And you enter the code partrain. He created a code just for you guys and get 20% off. So if you're thinking about maybe getting something to take your game to the next level, this could be a great option for you. So listen to the yeah. podcast, see if you like it. And if you do, you, we just got you a nice little uh, code. Well, last thing I'll say, if, if you're if you're the golfer out there that is interested in getting better, scoring better, there's nobody better in the game of golf right now than John to yeah. relay that message, to project that strategy, and to really help you dig into what you need to do. But like anything, you got to put in the work. So, yeah, totally. Well, to thanks John to John as always. always. Thank you guys for hopping aboard. It means the world. If you liked this episode, do us a solid and give us a review at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Also, I would add, make sure that you guys are subscribed to our email list. We're still going through yeah. the Instagram stuff and we just launched our hats. I'm wearing it right now. If you're on video. It's good, by the way. Thank you. And we just launched them via email. And so I think moving forward, I think email is going to be so key. Obviously, follow us at our personal accounts at eSinger7 and Matt Serms. But the email... It's really a great way to have a direct line of communication with us. If you ever want to send us a story, if you ever have questions, Instagram DMs used to be that. Hopefully we'll get it back soon. Yeah. But subscribe to our email list at thepartrain.com. Just scroll down. You'll see a place to hop aboard that email list. That way we can keep this conversation going. And interact with us on Twitter. In the meantime. Yeah. We want you to do that all the time, but in the meantime, we're over there too. So. Yep. We'll all right, guys. Well, no matter how you're hitting it, no matter if you shank one on the range, if you're embarrassed by topping it on the first tee or you're just feeling nervous over the shots and you're thinking that you shouldn't be feeling nervous, what do they got to do, sir? Just enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride, guys. Take care. John Sherman, welcome aboard the part train, our friend from Practical Golf, author of Four Foundations of Golf, and now online video series. We're going to get to that a little later. We're excited to have you aboard the train for your second trip. Thank you. Got my little ticket punched here. Good to be back on. Maybe it'll be better. I was on that fake Harry Potter train in uh, Universal <laughs> with my kids a couple weeks, a couple oh, weeks, two months ago. A little the, different. Uh, it's very cool. I don't know Express. why I'm bringing this up, but yeah, but it like kind of mimics the experience of you know the beginning of Harry Potter. It was pretty cool. You have to tell well, us after what's anyway. more enjoyable. Card. Yeah, maybe <laughs> we'll talk about that. Get through that. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, we were so, just talking off air. I think Cermak and I both love the second time that someone comes on the show because we get to go really deep on a topic 
Whereas the first episode with you is also amazing. Everyone should go search Partrain John Sherman and pull up the first episode. Maybe that would be some good foundational talks before this one. But before we dig in, I think we're going to dig into commitment a bit. We'll tell you why we want to dig into that in a second. But first, I want to know, Do you, you're a plus two, technically 1.9, but we'll say plus two. Do you think it's harder to get to a plus or a, let's just say scratch for purpose of the conversation? Or do you think it's harder to stay in a scratch? Oh, I think it's harder to get there. It took me like I was knocking on the door for four or five years, I would say. You know, it doesn't sound like much. And I'm sure you guys have heard this before from other people. But, you know, the difference between a two and a zero is... Like when I play with the two handicap, someone like a two or three, like it's really the amount of mistakes. I've always, I I say this a lot, like obviously scratch golfers can make some birdies and stuff like that, but I'll just, you know, I'll see like, oh, they're going to make a blunder once or twice around that the zero is not going to do. And same for the plus two versus the zero, like it's just steadier. And that steadiness, like that ability to not have those like one or two shots around where you're like, oh, what did I just do there? That's a big leap. It could be decision-making for some people. It could be skill or technique. You know, the answer is different, but that that's typically what I see. And, and anecdotally speaking in my own game, yeah, there's just shots I would hit as a one or two handicap that I, I really don't do it that much anymore. I don't know if that's a confidence thing. That I think that's part of it, but also like you can't have confidence without, you know, the skill as well. So yeah, I would say it's been easier to maintain it than it was to get there, at least for me. Maybe that could be different for other people. Well, John, I think that's pretty good. I mean, Ev, you'll appreciate this. And I have to give a knock to one of my brothers, Mike. He's pl- he's a plus two and I'm a zero. And what Mike does a little better than me at this stage of our careers, he hits it a little farther and he hits it a little closer. Mm. And <laughs> it is a game it of just, proximity, right? Right. And <laughs> And that's just it. And that's those, that's those two to three, two to three strokes. He's more than not going to get me. So. Yeah. Like, it looks, take that for it what it's look, worth, buddy. But yeah. I think you know, on, the sur- <laughs> on the surface, it can look quite similar, but you know it like when you're at that level and like, like when I play with, like I was in Scotland last month and I got to play with the 1100th ranked amateur golfer in the world. He used to be the best junior in Scotland about 15, 20 years ago. Still a great, great player plus six handicap. We played a match with him and a plus four. You know, you look at me versus them. I mean, we could hit a lot of the same shots, but like you could tell the difference. And then he sits down after lunch and he's talking about all the guys who beat the crap out of him. So there's always someone better, (laughs) right? What was the difference, John, between Um, you and a plus six? Well, we were playing Carnoustie and that's like their home (laughs) course. So that was a little, and that was my first time playing it. And literally my fifth round of golf in two days well, after being jet lagged. So I was, a li- I was, I'm, not, I'm giving some, myself some excuses. I was a little jet lagged and tired, but yeah, it was just, he hit the ball really far. I mean, he was driving it 320 quite easily, just effortlessly shot. I think five under there. Yeah. One of the hardest golf courses in the world. And just wow. like, looked like it was nothing to him. Mm. <laughs> like literally nothing. Like it was like, just another day on the, the course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's the ability to take it low. I yeah. Guess. And being comfortable yeah, when you to get take to that low. Yeah. When you exactly. I think that was the next step for me. Like, you know, you get to these like danger zones of uncomfortability with scoring. So like 
you know, when you're, let's say low handicap one, two, like if you start sniffing under par for certain rounds, you start like kind of getting a little tight at the end of the round and to be a plus handicap, but yeah, you're going to have to shoot under par a decent amount or play incredibly hard golf courses, uh, either one. And yeah, now it's not a big deal for me to shoot under par. Uh, whereas like at the end of the round, if I'm one or two or three under, I'm like, I'm not shaking in my boots anymore. Whereas before it was like, oh, you got to do it. So for someone like him, like, yeah, he's very normally shooting four, five, six, seven under in competition as well. So it's just, you know, some just, silly American was coming over to play a match with him and it was, like, you know, nothing to him. It was fun to watch. The best quick little anecdote I'll, I'll show you, which showed you the difference. We were on the eighth hole at Carnoustie, which is a great par three. I'm Hopefully I'm remembering that correctly. He shanked, like cold shanked it. 160, par three. I hit a great shot. I was seven feet away. He shanks it. His playing partner, also one of the best amateur golfers in Scotland. He's like 70 yards away, dead to rights. Has a bunker, very little sliver of green, and another bunker behind it, like death. I would have been shaking in my boots. He goes over to me. He's like, watch. Hits it to five feet and makes the par no problem. No problem. <laughs> How like did he react after the shank? Did he laugh? Didn't. It, yeah, it didn't even occur to him. He was like, oh, whatever. It was just, you know, it was, yeah. you know, now that I've played with a lot of different golfers in competition, I've seen, you know, the different levels and stuff like that. You just, you know, there's this skill and confidence as you get to these levels where you're like, whoa. Again, didn't even occur to him. Wasn't a big deal. You know, didn't give any thought to the shank. Knew he was going to get it on the green. No problem. I mean, he hit a shot that was... All of us looked at each other and we were like, and the guy who's his buddy, who's a plus four and always losing to him in tournaments. He's like, he kind of looks at me and he's like, that's the difference between me and him. Mm. I mean, John, like we, he'll just, he'll just do that. <laughs> have we, we, I mean, we, it's always easy to laugh about the shank, but the shank is real even for. Oh yeah. I had a whole summer. I had a whole summer of, of fearing of the shanks. It was, it was right. horrible. I was like gagging over the ball. I mean, we've watched tour players you know speed but like rom rom is a shanker jason day this plus six he goes okay my mind was a little off there that's okay my swing is still great you know yeah and that's that's like if like thinking relative to my game what i used to be like if i have a bad round or whatever it's just like you know whatever i'll I'll get it back it's not whereas before it might be like staring into the abyss so there's there's different levels of confidence you reach in your game and i think that's what you earn but you also have to like you know part of it is like as you know, when you get to that kind of level, you, you're like, yeah, I'm pretty damn good. Like you have to be a little cocky because yeah, yeah the game's going to throw stuff at you once in a while. You're like, Whoa, where did that come from? And you're just like, ah, whatever. No big, no big deal. Well, sir, it kind of reminds me of this old thing we used to say on the show. We haven't said in a couple of years where our mutual best buddy, how sir, and I met each other was our sir, uh, college teammate and my best buddy growing up, Ryan. And this guy's a scratch, you know, been a plus. They played at Missouri State together, and he's a ball-striking machine, right? And growing up, Ryan and Scott Langley, who's played on the PGA Tour, I don't know if he still plays in the PGA Tour. He's not playing anymore. Yeah, I don't think he is. But he was close to winning a couple of times early in his career on the PGA Tour. And they were both one and two. Scott went to Illinois. Ryan went to Missouri State. They were always the two, two best at their age group growing up in Missouri. And Ryan told us once, the difference between me and Scott is when Scott is five under, Scott is thinking about going eight under. Yeah. And when Ryan <laughs> got to five under, Ryan was like, how the hell can I stay at five under? Yeah, exactly. You know? 
Yeah. Kind of like that quote I heard from the guy. I think it was the guy who caddied for Tom Watson and Greg Norman. I think this is true. He said, you know what the difference between the two of them? When Greg Norman hit it in the fairway divot, he'd, he'd be like, oh, God. And when Tom Watson did it, he'd look at him and be like, watch this. <laughs> so I hope I think that's true. I hope that's, that's true. Good, but yeah, it, it, it's story. this like two this majors, comp- eight majors. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's just like. <laughs> I, I don't know how you teach that or learn that. I don't know if it's just something people are born with or all the experiences in their life lead to that. It's hard to put your finger on it. I think you can build it more of it. I think I have, but everyone reaches a point where they're uncomfortable. You either break through that or that's kind of the level of golf you're going to stay at. And that's why I find the game so fascinating because I don't know if this is it for me. Maybe I'm going to get better. I don't know. Or maybe this is the best I'll ever play. I'd like to find out though. Right. Well, actually, this is going to be the perfect story to transition into our topic today, because I just played Blue Mound Country Club in Wisconsin, which is a Seth Rayner design, super amazing place. I think it's top two in Wisconsin. I was lucky enough to get invited there. And one of the guys I was playing with was a plus one club engineer, always been around the game. And I was so shocked and actually comforted a little bit as an eight to see and hear a plus one all day yell at himself to say, (laughs) I keep steering it, stop steering it. And I find it so interesting. I think golf could be one of the only games where we can think a thought five seconds before we take a motion and have an intention all day. And our body, it seems like our body doesn't allow us to do it. And I just, first of all, I want to ask you, have you experienced that as a plus two, where it almost feels like a physical thing you can't overcome in regards to commitment? Yeah. I mean, there are absolutely days where I show up to the course with some type of pattern that is troublesome to me, whether that's, you know, I'm healing it off my driver. You know, I like to talk in impact simplicity. I'm keeping the face open. And that's also the difference between like how I play now versus how I played, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago. I can still score well with my body not doing what I want it to do. And that's relative to each golfer. Even that guy I played with in Scotland, the plus six, he was grunting and moaning all day at a lot of his drives. He was probably very dissatisfied with the way he struck the ball, the way he sounded, but he still scored. (laughs) And that's, you know, that's why I like scoring is like this, it's a skill. And that's like a lot of the stuff I try and talk about the type of coaching I do. It's like everything embroiled into that. But yeah, there are absolutely days where maybe I'm like clanking my irons a little bit. I'm just not driving it well. You know, that's, that's why I came up with my two thirds rule where I'm saying, you know, you could still play your best golf in one part of your game, whether that's T approach or, or inside a hundred yards is uncomfortable. That, that, I think that's just part of golf. Now, what I would say, what's the difference between me doing that and a 15 handicap is obviously like the tolerance is much tighter. So if I'm struggling with my driver, I'm not blowing three or four balls out of bounds. Maybe I'm missing a few fairways or I'm not hitting it as far as I could. So, so that's, you know, that that's where skill shows up and, you know, a bad iron performance. Maybe I hit six, seven greens in regulation instead of 11. It's a tighter tolerance. And whereas as you get to, higher and higher handicaps like that, 
kind of dispersion of outcomes is far wider. Like you're going to see the chunks, the skulls, the the tops or the blown OB, like that type of stuff. So it's just kind of narrowing these things a bit, but they're still somewhat variable from round to round. I think that's it still frustrates even pro golfers. Yeah. I mean, John, I think that's really good for our listeners. You know, when you have those rounds, which we all do, where you're struggling off the tee, but like when you get a chance with an iron, you're putting it up on the green. You know, and you're hitting it pretty close. There seems like just such a different level of confidence with your iron play versus your driver or vice versa. And then it's about dealing with that and understanding yep. that. And and like you said, figuring out a way to score because there's no pictures on the scorecard. And that's kind of the story most rounds. Talk about mentally how you set yourself up and deal with that to ultimately put yourself in the best position to score. That is a... Also a confidence thing, I believe. So if you can put the right type of work in with your ball striking skills and you have have a good attitude on the course and you're patient, let's say the golfer who struggles with that is not as, as skilled and confident and mentally sound in their game. They're going to hit a bad drive and all of a sudden they're bringing that to the next shot. Right. You know, what is the the scratch plus handicap do? They go to the next shot and they're probably, I've, another thing I say about like, what does a scratch golfer look like? You very rarely see them hit two bad shots in a row. Mm, I think that's, that's one of the big differences. Like it's very rare. I've been around a lot of them at this point. It's very, you know, they, they get into trouble. They get out of trouble. They don't compound the mistake. They hit a bad drive in the rough. You know, they have the skill to maybe get it on the green or at least around the green and, and you know, not turn that into a double bogey. But a lot of it is like the, a belief in your skills. And again, is that a chicken or the egg thing? Like, right. You can't be confident unless you've got the skills. So you got to work on them. And then at the same time, like you can't be the, I've seen golfers who I think do have the skills and they're just so down on themselves. And they're like, they hit some bad shots and they're just like absolutely beat themselves up. And I used to be like that too, quite a bit. So yeah, it all, it all works together. Like, I think, you know, it's hard to separate where the mind and the, and the skill of your body and your physical skills where one starts and one ends, but there's absolutely a connection. But in this game, you have to have the confidence to hit bad shots and come back from those and say, okay, that happened. Now this is another independent event. It's not technically associated with the one that just happened. Like, how do I make the best decision here? Yeah. yeah. Easier said than done, of course. Oh, yeah. Well, John, we did a video testing this. Um, when I visited Serum in Chicago, we did a commitment challenge, a little five-hole challenge. And essentially, we thought, okay, let's see if we can both beat 80% commitment. And let's see what happens on the shots that we commit and the shots we don't, right? And the big takeaway was actually quite surprising. The takeaway was it was very difficult to track. It was mm, actually I'm difficult sure. <laughs> to know what was a committed swing versus not. Now, what we did learn was it was easier to pull out committed plans going into the shot. So then we got really curious. Actually, it was the genesis of wanting to have this conversation. We want to pick people's brains, especially people like you, to understand how do you define commitment and is commitment purely the plan or do you think there's a way to define a committed swing? I think it starts deeper than that. When you when you're on the course, it tricks you into like changing your decisions and your mindsets before every swing. So you can have a plan beforehand and make a few doubles or triples. You're like, "All right, now I'm going to start going wild here and get aggressive." The the type of golf I like to play and what I want 
others to try and play if again if their goal is to shoot the lowest scores possible is there needs to be like a philosophy a belief system that is the the I'll use the foundation of everything so that when you're on the course and you know you're looking at that pin and your score is not what you want you're like I got to make some birdies here or you're not hitting your driver like you want it to but you know it's still the right club to hit and you're going to stick with it not just because of this round but for the next 10 or 20 rounds so there needs to be this like underlying belief system and I think it could be its strategy it's a philosophy on what scoring is, which let's, is, is not about making a ton of birdies. It's more mistake reduction. Um, you know, a philosophy where you're trying to be as consistent as you can with your thoughts before and over the ball with a routine. Um, so when I think about like what I'm committing to and what I believe in in my golf game, it's this whole thing. And that that is why I am, I believe, more committed than most over the golf ball. It's not just like this decision, I'm going to commit to this shot. Like, that's too simple. Like, it needs mm. to be far deeper than that. Like, when, when we were exchanging some emails before we recorded this show, I was thinking about that. And, and that's what really came to mind is like over the last, you know, me playing the game for 25 years and, and making so many mistakes and, you know, maybe the last decade unraveling a lot of that stuff. Like, I think that's what I built towards is this belief system that allows me to have a clear-ish mind before and during my swing. And and there absolutely are rounds where that comes into question in tournaments where I'm standing over the ball. I'm like, oh, I just don't feel so good right now. But that is golf, too. So you're trying to mitigate that as much as possible. That's a long-winded answer. So can that, we, that's the best I can describe good. it. Can we dig more into that? Because I think when uh, someone yeah, when someone hears, I'm it's probably going to be the hook of this episode. I just decided because at the <laughs> beginning, because I'm going to commit to this shot is too simple. It it's, is. I think it's it is. deeper than that. Let's dig into what that means and how someone can get. Because look, let's be honest. The majority of our listeners are probably the twelve, the ten to fifteen, right? We've got mm-hmm. a lot of really high performing amateurs. We've got some pluses and we've got the whole range, but for someone of the 10 to 15, what is the foundational knowledge and belief system that they have to adopt to make commitment deeper than I'm going to commit to this shot, this plan? So one of the the pieces of feedback, my book's been out for almost a year now, so I've gotten a ton of feedback on it. And one of the things that I keep hearing over and over again, for, and again, that's my audience too. Like when I write or talk, I am thinking about your typical golfer. Like I think low handicaps can benefit from my info, but I really do think about, you know, your typical 10, 15 handicap. And the thing I hear over and over again is like the expectation management stuff. Like when you described stats to me of like, what are reasonable outcomes? Like what's a good shot for a 15 handicap with approach shots or drives or how does scoring occur? Just understanding that, you know, me going from a 20 to a 10 is a lot about removing doubles and triples. So once you start to unravel that part of the game and you're not thinking like, oh, it has to be this stripe show to become an eight handicap, then you're starting to now build this belief system. So for example, when you're in a situation where you hit that bad drive and you're in the trees and you remember, you know, from Mark Brody's book, if I make bogey here, all of a sudden I'm keeping up pace with tour players. And that like, as simple as that is, when you buy into that, that is a total mindset shift. So now on the course, you're like, I'm not going to try and thread it through this branch here and and make a triple or a quad. And like, that's how you save strokes. 
for a lot of players. And it's so hard, even at the pro level, like Scott Fawcett says this to all of his elite amateurs and pro players as well. That that's just one example of like, I have a belief system in how scoring occurs in golf. Therefore I will make these decisions on the course because I know they are optimal and it's going to go against every instinct I have, which is to kind of gamble here and, and for, you know, make up for the initial mistake. That's how you might save four or five, six strokes for certain players. And we can give a bunch of examples in this, how you pick targets with approach shots, you know, hitting driver versus irons off the tee, trying to avoid big trouble off the tee. So when you start to learn all of this, and I don't think it's terribly complicated and then bring it into your game slowly, that's where you're like, okay, I can stand over the ball knowing I'm making an optimal decision here. And it gives you more peace of mind and clarity, I believe. So you know what freaks me out? I used to be uh, pretty lax on this. My mom used to tell me this all the time as a kid. I didn't listen. And now that I'm 35, I've realized, holy shit, we need to get serious about this stuff. So I did some research, guys, and I pulled up guys on the PGA Tour that have had scary surgeries with melanoma or other forms of skin cancer from all the sun exposure we get from playing golf, right? So here's the list. Charlie Hoffman got a huge chunk removed out of his arm. Looks like he got mauled by a bear. Brad Faxon, Roy Sabatini, Stuart Sink, Justin Thomas, Andy North, Adam Scott when he was 31. How crazy is that? Jimmy Walker, the list goes on and on. Okay, I also did some more research. According to a March 2020 study released by the Skin Cancer Foundation, recreational golfers are at a high risk of developing skin cancer every hour while on the course. It's likely they receive 3.5 to 5.4 times the amount of UV radiation exposure needed to cause a sunburn. More than that, water and sand traps are hazards in more ways than one. Water and sand can reflect UV radiation so that the skin absorbs it twice. Okay. And the more that someone burns, says the foundation, the greater the risk of skin cancer. So if you've ever had a sunburn, that means you have greater risk to have skin cancer. And this message is even more important for you. So our friends at Oars and Alps have made protection from the sun as easy and pleasurable as it can get. Okay. It's not a fun thing. We just have to do it. We're out there for four or five hours. We are at more at risk than maybe any group out there. Okay. So go to oarsandalps.com. Enter the code SPF train. You're going to get 15% off. I love the ghost stick, which is a clear thing you can put on your face. The new SPF spray is amazing. You don't even have to rub it in. It's great for reapplying. You can keep it in your bag. It's super small, great for carry-ons. And also their SPF spray, they have zinc oxide spray as well as regular spray up to SPF 70 with antioxidants and other things. No harsh chemicals like your Copatrone Sports, or your banana boats that you guys have probably used for years. So Let's protect ourselves. Let's go out and enjoy the ride and not have to worry about the damage we're doing to our skin. And I know nobody thinks they're going to get skin cancer, but I've started to notice even sunspots, like my skin starting to look older. And it's like, okay, if you don't care about sun damage for cancer, at least I'm sure you care about your appearance. Do it so that you're protected from the sun and you don't look like a baseball glove from high school. Okay. Let's at least preserve what we have left of our appearance while we're playing this great game. Okay. So go to oarsandalps.com, enter the code SPF train, get 15% off and let's protect ourselves out there. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Today I was talking with my coworker and he said he played pretty good, you know, over the weekend shot 95 and, but he was talking about this shot. He had a nine iron in the rough and he had to go over the tree and he hit it great. And it just thought it was perfect, but it just bounced way over the green. I said, well, you know, that's how you're coming out of the rough. <laughs> right. The, the, you, you know, I'm a good, I said, I'm a good player. 
and I'm not probably going to even really stop that out of the rough. So he's like, Oh, good point. You know, yep. <laughs> uh, I'm like you, that's in the fairway. You make a good swing. You could put some spin on that potentially from the fairway, but the rough, no chance. Right. And then another thought came to my mind. I was playing on Wednesday, 550 par five dog leg, right? Dog, double dog leg, dog leg left out of bounce. Right. My tendency to miss it is to push a little bit. So I'm just like, you just have to be left. Yep. And if, even if you're a 10 handicapper who misses it, right. Right. That's the tendency to block it. You've got to do everything in your willpower on that hole to understand that missing it left in the trees is really going to change the whole outcome of the hole. <laughs> but it's hard to accept that when you want to hit the fairway, but yeah, no, so talk about no that, John, sits, just a couple of things here. Well, yeah, no one sits you down when we take up the game. It's mostly about, you know, the fundamentals of the swing and posture and grip and all that stuff. So no one, we didn't really understand the rules. And, and thanks to someone like Mark Brody, like we have very good information as much as people still resist it. Uh, what, what separates the 10 handicap from the 20 handicap or the touring pro from the plus two. And as you said, a lot of that can be done through understanding where you lose the most amount of strokes and how to mitigate that, which a very simple example of that is if you have big trouble off the tee, a hazard, a penalty area, bunkers, and then you have another side of the hole that is more innocuous, just aim over there. Right. <laughs> and by making that decision, you've lowered your expected score on the hole in the long run. Um, right. Whereas most people be like, oh, I'm just going to aim in the center of the fairway right. because I, I need to hit the fairway. And it's this very basic weighted math when you think about it is that like, oh, if I hit the left rough five more times and don't hit it out of bounds, which is a full two stroke penalty. Like I will have a lower score on this hole over the long run. And that's a tough concept to get people to buy into because people in golf and in, I think in life in general, we make decisions based on the short term. It's very hard to convince people to make decisions in the long run. Um, that's a great way to put it. That's why like the type of advice I give, like I liken it now to like personal finance advice or nutrition advice. I'm, I'm trying to get people to eat their fruits and vegetables. I think golfers know what's good for them. They just have a hard time of like sticking with those habits. You know, why would I save 30% of my income and put it in a 401k where I'd rather go on that vacation now or buy that nicer car? Why would I, you know, eat broccoli and a, a sweet potato with dinner? Because I, I want those French fries instead. Like it's, feels yeah. better in the moment, right? <laughs> well, and it depends what happened the last hole. Have you and I have talked about it, right? Coming off a bad hole, you get a par five. Just want to get up there and just rip it, right? Yeah. This is like, this is my chance when you totally forget about your routine, where actually want to, where I want to put it, where I want to, where I need to be, as opposed to just getting up there and just want to smash it. This is really interesting, John, because I think a lot of people that listen to our show have probably heard or read somewhere about the the stat that everybody says, which is the scratch versus the 10 or whatever it is, it makes one more birdie, one point something birdies than me, right? And it's all about the double avoidance and mistake avoidance. Now, the tricky thing with that conversation, John, is avoidance isn't a great recipe for better outcomes. Ev doesn't so, like that word. And well, That's it's fair. tricky, right? Because the, I don't think anybody tries to make doubles. I think a lot of times doubles are almost these blackout moments where you're, you're moving faster and out of nowhere, you're like, how did that even happen? So yeah. this whole notion <laughs> of avoiding them is almost like, I don't know how to do that. Right. 
Yeah. And, and really like, that's pretty much like every piece of advice I give is like building towards that goal. Yeah. Because I can't build towards the goal of you hitting spectacular drives and irons and tap and birdies. Like that's just, right. no one does that quite often. I'm building towards a goal of, well, maybe you won't hit it in the fairway bunker as often or OB, or maybe you won't lose your temper after a bad start. Or maybe you're going to work on your speed control a bit with putting. So you're not going to three putt as much or you're chipping and, and pitch shots. So you're not sculling and chunking a few more. Like that's where a lot of the doubles come from, you know? Yep. Errant drives, bad targets, approach shots that are not getting to the green or you're being short-sighted. We can't avoid them all. We can make them happen less often. Maybe that's a better term. And that's, I really think that's what coaching is, is that, you know, the way you describe something resonates with people differently. So for example, like I wrote a lot of articles on my site for years and I think people like kind of like them, but it didn't like, I wasn't getting like 50 emails a day being like, thank you for this. It was kind of like this slow burn. But when my book came out and I put it all together in this cohesive thing, all of a sudden it's like, People were like, oh my God, I'm going to do this now. And I'm like, I've been telling you to do this for seven years. <laughs> but what I hadn't done is I hadn't organized it all and I hadn't like spelled it out properly. So when someone finished the book, they're like, I'm going to do some of this now. Yeah. The like rather than just framework, like that 600. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's a framework. Um, rather than just reading a 600 word blog article and then you click to the next thing, and you're like, oh, whatever. I want to talk about doubles for a second. <laughs> sure. I mean, how often do, do we hear especially from maybe the, let's say the 10 to 12 handicap, man, I shot, you know, I had 85, but I had three doubles today. It's like, well, so you played, you played really well. You know, you just had a couple holes there. You hear that a lot. So you're hitting it really well all day, but you have these moments on Wednesday. I was hitting it pretty good. I made I had, in the back nine. I'd birdied two of my last three holes. I hit a drive a little left in the rough, not a great lie. I try to cut a nine nine around the tree and I pull hook it into the gunch that I didn't even realize was there. And I make a double because I was way too aggressive. I, I, it didn't even cross my mind to, hey, you know what? Maybe just try to put it in the bunker in front of the green. But I was swinging good that day, right? So sometimes we feel like we can be, we can be Superman. And the whole, there was a mental block in my routine. I really wasn't thinking. But I think that translates for a really good player to that 10 handicap because you just, oh, yeah. you're Superman out there. And your mind gets clouded. John, thoughts? Yeah, I think, again, it all happens to us relative to our games. But I mean, it happened to me. I've only played one competitive round this year. And it was the qualifier for the Long Island Open. And I played great. But unfortunately, I made a quadruple and a double bogey, which is very uncommon for me. And both of those came from very straightforward greenside bunker shots. And when I kind of unraveled the round, I thought to myself, I'm like, I shot seven over and That's six of those, six of those were, were from two holes and it was a tough day. The course was firm. It was windy. So I played great, but I just had gotten back from Scotland and I had this moment in the bunker that the sand was different. So I was coming back to like American sand and the first one I caught too close and it sailed over the green. I made a double and then I was playing great and I got to the 12th hole and I, I got over the ball and I just wasn't comfortable over the ball because again, I had this like, we were like, oh my God, I'm in, back in America. Like for whatever reason, I got out of my normal state and I chunked the first one, hit the lip on the next one, came backwards and chunked the next one into the rough, 
just disaster. onto the green to just total disaster. And I thought I'm like, as it happened, I'm like, whoa, what just happened here? Yeah. And then I like just went on with my round and I think I was uh, one over for the rest of the round. So I played fine. But after the round, I thought back to it. I'm like, yeah, I missed the making the tournament by two strokes, but like I played really well. I struck the ball. Great. I, I controlled everything I needed to. I just had a couple of brain farts because of this like lack of confidence. I'm not a great bunker player to begin with. So I have to be uh, honest about that, but yeah, that was, it, it showed up there because I was like, Oh, the sand's a little different again. Right. You but weren't prepared it for happened. it. And yeah, it happens, but I didn't, you know? I didn't beat myself up over it. Cause I came out. I'm like, that was a strange circumstance. I played well and you know, I'm never going to make a quadruple bogey in a, in a straightforward greenside bunker probably ever again in a tournament. I don't think I will at least. Right. Uh, it was just one of those things that happened. John, why some, you... sometimes you, so my point is, is sometimes you cannot, you know, you cannot avoid them. They're still going to happen, but can we make right. them happen less often is, right. is what I want golfers to buy into. Why do you think golf maybe more than any other activity in the world, the people that are more skilled acknowledge difficulty, but the people that are less skilled <laughs> think it's easier or uh, expect I think more. Maybe don't acknowledge the that... difficulty they're just naive would be my, my first guess is that the, you know, the skilled golfer who's been through that progression where they started shooting in the hundreds all the way down into the sixties, whatever they get to, um, they kind of know like what it takes to hit a golf ball close to where you want it to go. And they also know like what it looks like when you're uncomfortable and how quickly it can go. Whereas, you know, the, the less experienced golfer is, you know, I always talk about watching golf on TV. I think that does a great disservice to people. And, you know, for a very long time, the type of advice that I give or you guys do on this show and other people, it wasn't very like cool or interesting to people. It was more like this grip it and rip it and like, just go for it type stuff. It wasn't very cerebral or um, disciplined, you know, mental advice I thought was a little watered down and there wasn't much strategic advice. It was all about the golf swing. So we're kind of left with a lot of, blank spaces that people filled in the wrong way uh, is the best way I could put it. Well, Evan, I, do you want to jump into that example? But I got some th additional thoughts on that. Go too. ahead. Go ahead. Well, it's just about what it's interesting. What gets golfers attention, especially, you know, more the average player, like water out of bounds mm. like, lights up and you're going to figure a way to really play around that or play away from it, or hopefully be, you know, be aggressive to your target. But it's like, you're, you're never going to miss that, but the downhill line, the wind that's happening at the ball versus the wind that's happening at the pin, uh, which way the grass is growing in the rough green side, those things don't grab the attention. Um, and it's just yeah. interesting. It's, it's just kind of big versus little, you know, it, no, it's just, the, the absolute difference. If I could, you know, another description of people like, cause I, for a long time I was on the outside looking in, I'm like, what is a, scratch golfer look like i had actually not played with a lot of them and i was just curious as someone who was like you know i was a 10 handicap then i got down to a five four three maybe in high school i just didn't quite get it and the way i looked at the course then was just like trouble like i'm on the tee i'm like thinking of where it like could go and i'm like oh don't hit it there and now i'm so hyper focused on my target that it's it's almost like not to say the trouble never exists to me but it's so much more tuned in again because i've learned a lot of these things that I'm trying to teach other people about targets and 
reasonable like dispersions off the tee and stuff like that where it's it's almost like it's this like cloud outside of it whereas before as you said it was like this bright light like don't hit this hazard don't hit here and it was just like oh god this is terrifying playing golf i was like just very fearful is the word i would use uh, and yeah. now it's more very like see target hit go um and then deal with it and move on to the next one let's talk about serm's example serm you and i were talking about this off air this kind of gets us back into the commitment idea of i'm going to give you two scenarios i don't think either are necessarily great but you tell me which one is the lesser evil okay <laughs> i'll give it a shot one is you just want to smash it and you have no plan mm -hmm. where you want to go where you want to miss it etc or you spoke of fearful or you're really fearful because of the trouble and you have a plan, but you're not really, it's rooted in where you don't want to go, right? It's rooted in avoidance and fear. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think is better in the long run? If someone's going to pick one of the lesser evils, what would it be? Well, I think it, I think it's easier to just kind of go for it type mentality. I mean, this could depend on the golfer, but you know, it's easier to give that first example, like, but, but just hit it over there. Like that's your little target. Like, and yeah. just go for it. Let it rip. I mean, that's how I kind of hit my driver. Now I pick my target and I just let it go. Whereas before, like, it's this like guided, like nervous swing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a tough way to play the game. And it, it, it obviously is, it's going to show up sometimes because, you know, there are certain holes that, you know, it's tighter, there's more trouble or, or you aren't playing as well, or maybe there's a little bit more pressure. It could be a tournament or a match with, you know, that means something to you. Um, so I think the volume gets turned up and down on those things naturally, but yeah, I want people to swing with, with freedom as much as they can and let their body do what it knows how to do versus like your brain is kind of like the governor on the golf cart right. where it's just like limiting itself. Like don't hit it there, swing slower, like control, like that to me is the type of swings I used to make this like guided anti whatever miss. And now it's just kind of this like target, let it go deal with it. Now we've talked about commitment and what, well, like we talked about at the beginning, a lot of times it's a very subconscious rooted in past bad memories that you can't seem to let it go. I spoke about the plus one that was steering it all day. Let's talk about that a little bit. How did you go from that to more freedom? Cause I think everybody listening, I know I am, John, I'm like, how do you let it go, John? How do you well, let it go, I, I John? Think you, but you've got to, it's you the key to golf. Well, <laughs> the more skill you have, the more you're able to, what I, what do I mean by skill at, at the impact interval, the more you could strike it more centered on the face, control where the face is pointing at and have a reasonable club path with that make functional interaction with the turf, the more you can increase all of those skills in your swing, the more opportunity you have to be a little looser with like that other stuff. So for example, like Jordan Spieth, I actually think he has a fantastic mental game, but you see him, you know, when he had his run in 2015, 2016, he scolded himself a lot, you know, at that U S open at chambers Bay, like just like screaming at the golf course. And I think that works for him, Yeah, but he's just so damn good that he can, he can make that, let that happen versus if a 20 handicap was complaining about the course, I'd say like, listen, we got to be a little more, take some more ownership over things. Whereas the better player, I think tour players, they're almost better suited to like, you know, stamp that imaginary spike mark in front of the hole and think that was the reason they missed the putt. So absolutely. Like 
the, the better you increase your skill and that's going to have to be earned through practice and playing more, the more opportunity you have to, to have a little bit more leeway in the mental game. And then that goes the other direction too. Like, I think you could be less skilled and have a very strong, like strategic and mental game and outperform someone who's more skilled than you. Like I can tell you the players I compete against in tournaments, I prefer it when it gets very windy and tough because then that's my opportunity to be one of the lower players on a leaderboard because I can outplay them mentally. I will grind it out harder than them, but they're probably better ball strikers than me. Well, one thing I'm really excited about that we haven't really talked as much about on the show yet, but I'll give our listeners a little tease is our partnership with TaylorMade. Yeah. People have asked me recently, like, Hey, what's coming up? Like, what are you really excited about? And I always say this TaylorMade and us, we are going to be the first ever partner to do a my symbol golf ball run. And what that means is, and by the way, any of you can do this, but we're doing something unique that you can't get anywhere. So let me explain the difference. If you Google TP5 TaylorMade my symbol or TaylorMade my symbol golf balls, it'll pop up. You click through to that link. Essentially, no other golf manufacturer has the ability to replace the number on the golf ball with an image. Now you could do your own colors, symbols, logos, numbers, but it's only the preset options that they have, right? Yep. What's really cool with our partnership is we're going to have tailor-made TP5 and TP5X balls with the par train logo underneath the tailor-made logo and then enjoy the ride on the side. So better I love the TP5s too. Ab. It's pretty sweet. So they're not out yet. They're coming soon. We're waiting on an update. But in the meantime, I encourage you guys to go Google TaylorMade TP5 My Symbol and go to this page and play around with and figure out you could come up with some cool designs on your own with the preset stuff they have. I mean, they've got a taco here. It, lo it looks like you're playing a TaylorMade taco ball. They've got chilies. On here, you can put crazy numbers if you want, donuts. Have fun, have fun with it. I mean, so if you guys want to kind of use this, not enough people are talking about this yet. If you want to start playing around with this for your own game and your own logos of what they have available, go for it. Or you can wait until we drop our custom first ever tailor-made par train balls coming soon. So just Google tailor-made TP5, my symbol. You guys are going to absolutely love it. It's such a cool feature. John, think about that nine handicap at your, your local country club. He's 62 years old. He hits a 240 butter cut every time. He accepts who he is, what his identity is. And he's a great money player, and he's always tough to beat in the team game, right? Mm -hmm. Where you can take another nine handicap who's maybe always thinking about how to get to that five or six handicap and yeah. is playing in fear. Yeah. Right. The, the managing that, I think you see both examples quite often. Yeah. I, I think you do have to be comfortable in your own skin and have some type of like identity to your game. You know, we all have different strengths. Um, some people are naturally like better off the tee or they're better iron players. Like if it's one of those two, good for you. <laughs> um, that's better. But yeah, you have to be like comfortable with the type of like game that you have and I think you see that in the tour, tour game also. Like there's some players who take on too many shots. 
and they're like, oh, I wish I could hit that high fade like he does, but I'm like that low draw player. And then they start getting outside of that. And all of a sudden, like, I, I hate to say it, but like, I'll probably get trashed for this, but someone like Rory McIlroy to me, like, you know, watching him over the last like five years, like the amount of different shots he tries to play on the course, like I'm watching him at Memorial when he had a chance to win. I'm like, his identity is to me is this high draw player. And like, I try and see him like playing fades and different wedge shots. I'm like, I would just be curious if he just got totally simple again, like went the DJ or Brooks Kepka type route. DJ said, I'm never going to yeah. hit a draw. Yeah. And he's he, never, it like, never happens. He, exactly. He remember he said at the masters this year when they changed 13, 13. 13 yeah. he's like, I might have to draw it. I'm just going to hit my fade, whatever. Like there's something to be said about that. And that's the type of golf I want people to aspire towards is like, so simple and basic and that's your identity that you don't go outside that and i think you have a better chance rather than like oh i want to be like this guy i played with or this guy and have that shot and then you know play a putt like that and chip like that and there's like have all these things competing for your interest in your mind and then that just makes it harder to stand over the ball with confidence in my opinion I've always been shocked and this is take it as it is i mean i'm an eight handicap i shouldn't be commenting on roy mcelroy's game but I've always been pretty shocked that he hasn't – I don't see him playing flighted wedges all that often. Like, I remember DJ – the telecast made such a big deal over how often DJ spends with his track man and his wedge distances. But, like, clearly that's all he was working on was well, his wedge Well, he didn't even distances. do it beforehand. Like, it was so simple for him. I remember, like, he blew a couple of open championships because he was – just couldn't control his wedge distance. It's like he bought a track man and like practices wedge. And like that was it. He won a major. That I was like, I don't see Rory flighting a lot of wedges. Everything is like because I agree with every shot leading into the green. Like play your shot, play your high draw. I mean, he's like, trying to. I saw him like he, he's working some wedges in both. I, I just I think that's the curse of the gifted golfer, and he's. Yeah, I mean, who's more gifted, gifted than him? Gets. Like it's just like you can do everything, and he can do everything. Obviously he can. Yeah. And it's but, just, then you watch it under like the pressure. I'm like, you're missing greens from like 90 yards. Like it's, well, it's, I, I, I love watching him so much. And that that's always been my thought with him over the last like five plus years is like, what if he got like crazy simple, like just crazy simple. Tiger dealt and with the shutters too when he came Yes, yeah, Tiger, Tiger had High spinny shot. Yeah. Worked on he, his swing. He you know, nuked and, a lot of greens back in the day with his wedges. I remember when he first came up, he had horrible wedge finishing distance control. Finishing behind his but, neck. Next thing you yeah. know, he's finishing out in front of his head. I mean. Yeah. So do you yeah. think, John, <laughs> do you think that you can track committed swings? Going back to the original uh, question. Yes, I, I, I do. Like So the type of stuff that I like to do after every round that I always think for any golfer, this is a good exercise, is just to kind of like, Go through like a a recap of your round the best you can. Like after, you know, right when the information's fresh, I just kind of go through shots in my head. And that's one of the questions I ask myself. Was there a shot today or shots where I did not feel comfortable over the ball and I had some like bad thoughts? Did that cause me to hit a poor shot or was it okay? Because you can still hit good shots with bad thoughts. Like that's just not, yeah. like that's another thing I want people to know. Like well, you can be scared. You can be nervous. I've played in, I was. Happens all the time. <laughs> I won my club championship this year. It was a 36 hole final match play. I was eating a turkey sandwich in between the 18s. And all of a sudden I couldn't swallow. 
I was like, I was like, there's something happening. I'm like, what's going on here? And like, obviously I was nervous, but it was okay. And I went out and played and like, I just kind of dealt with that. And so like, you can play good golf if you're nervous or don't have great thoughts. Like, do I want you to have those all the time? No, but like, that's okay too. But I think when there's a pattern, getting back to my original point, when you start reviewing your shots after every round, if you start seeing a pattern saying like, oh, I hit five tee shots to the right and my pre-shot thought was don't hit it to the right and that was just dominating my mind, well, then that's something you're going to have to deal with in your pre-shot routine and mental rehearsals. Like that's not easy, but I'm always looking for patterns is my best answer to that question. Like, was there a pattern of me not being committed to shots and then having outcomes that were not so good in tandem with that? And and they're going to be highly correlated. Like you do need a, a certain level of commitment, obviously. Because I think there's a... Serm, you I and I struggled with being able to determine if a shot was committed after a good one. I think it's easy after a bad one to say, oh, I'm... Yeah. You know, I, maybe I wasn't committed, but I found that the easy ones to decide was I was in between a club. I wasn't quite sure on where I wanted to leave it when, so that was plan not being yep. committed going in, but over the ball, it was harder to know. Did I have a subconscious last minute little flinch, you know, halfway down that I was trying to avoid something maybe but I felt committed. You know what I mean? Then it starts to get pretty cloudy. Uh, yeah. It, it, I mean, our minds are black boxes. Like I'm not going to pretend to have the answer for everyone. Yeah. I think the less question marks you have beforehand. So you mentioned like wind and elevation change, like that's the type of stuff where if I can simplify that for people, like a lot of times I'll just, you know, my, my kind of go-to approach shot advice is just pick the target at the meat of the green and take a little more club like yeah and the reason i do that is not that it's going to make sure they hit good shots all the time is that when you know that that is your default you will have less indecision beforehand versus like mm. if you're like oh, well, the pins over there let me laser that maybe i'm gonna do you know then then there's you know a little bit more i like that you're being more inconsistent like i, I or even tee shots when i just teach people some basic stuff about how to plan your tee shots before the round the more stuff the more variables you can remove from that process beforehand, I think the better chance you have to be fully committed either before and during the shot, like it's all connected on some level. Right. So if you're like, was this a six iron or a seven iron? Then you go to the ball and that's like still kind of rattling around in there. Like I would say that that's a tough thought to be dealing with. One other thing I would point out, John, too, I love the, after the round, you know, you're looking back and what were those moments where I think you talked about what you feel uncomfortable but there's those moments where you make good committed swings, but they end up where they shouldn't, right? Yeah, of course. That's they, golf. <laughs> and it's we like committing, but you can really learn a lot and you're gonna get better when you understand. Here's my example. I was 250 to the bunker. There's a creek. I hit my, you know, my two hybrid 240. But it's a it's a hot, the fairways are hot. Why am I hitting the two instead of the three? I hit the two, and what does it do? It rolls into the bunker by two yards. When it's like golfers struggle with always trying to max out distance instead of just be back when you need to be back. So after the round, Hey, I made a good committed swing, but what's going on in your mind? Why, why did I have to get those few yards extra? And yeah. And that's, and that's a lot of that I think can be accomplished with strategy. So like on a par five, if we know that we want to get to the closest to the green as possible 
and give ourselves the shortest wedge if you can't get there in two, which is the case for a lot of golfers. But the big caveat to that is not take on excessive risk. So there's a par five at my course where if I can't get to the green, there's just like this massive complex of bunkers short of it. Like I do not want to be in those bunkers. Like I'm not a great bunker player. I know that about myself. I don't want to give myself a 30 yard bunker shot. I will guarantee that I'm going to give myself a 50 to 60 yard wedge shot. I'm going to hit a club where no matter what, it's not going in that bunker. Because right. I know the difference between hitting a 60-yard wedge shot and a 35-yard bunker shot is very different for me. Now, if that was just fairway, then I'm hitting it as, as far down as I possibly can. So there are decisions you can make, and that gives you so much comfort. Like if there's a tee shot on your course where you say, okay, this isn't a driver. Like if I hit driver here, this this brings in like this area that maybe pinches and there's big trouble around it. But if I hit my hybrid and lay back of that, like I've got nothing but fairway and a little bit of light rough, like then you stand over the ball with a lot more confidence because if you did your homework beforehand, you don't step up to that T and you're like, is it a driver or the the three hybrid? Like that, that's where, like, I I think that gives you, again, not a guarantee that something good is going to happen, but at least more clarity and commitment. And you're stacking the odds in your favor. So I, I think that the worst thing that we can do is is trick ourselves into believing like if you are optimized and you are making the right decision that nothing bad is going to happen because then hmm. when the bad shots do happen, you're going to abandon that plan and then you're going to play right. like kind of haphazard golf. Um, so it's this just this understanding that like you can make fully committed swings and hit them like crap or you get a bad gust of wind or something like that again, the variability of the game and, and ultimately like keeping your eye on the prize in the long term, which is stacking the odds in your favor. I, w- I want to recap two things that you said. There's two big themes. I want to make sure the listeners take away. And then I got a couple more questions before we get out, let you out of here. One is it made me think of this John Dewey quote, which is one of my favorite quotes. He said, we do not learn from experience. We learn from reflecting on experience. Everything John's talked about today is about taking the extra step to reflect on what happened and what led to that happening. So many of us, we get wrapped up in the what happened and then we're just, we speed up, our thoughts move faster, we're committing less, we're trying to avoid mistakes, we're judging ourselves. And then it's like we black out and we don't really think about what's happening or how to fix it. So you're you're leaning into becoming a detective, which is really a, the most important step, I think, of anyone that actually wants to get better. Two, you are getting, you're simplifying things. I love what you said, John, about you kind of said it with Rory and then you said it for the common golfer. How can I just commit to a plan every time that on greens, I'm going to aim to the middle, I'm going to take a little bit more club, which gives me some room for error, right? In case I miss hit it. So if you know going in that that's your plan for the day, there's none of this, well, I'm doing this and this, and then there comes indecision and lack of commitment. So I actually think that's a great starting point of just saying, okay, off the tee, I'm going to aim 20 yards left of where I normally aim today. And that's going to be my plan off the tee because I know my tendency is to block it right. And, and that's your plan for the day. And then, you know, going into every shot, depending on obviously where the the hole goes, if there's, mm-hmm. you know, um, but for the most part, I think that could really help people lean into commitment because there's less decision-making throughout the round. So it's reflection, but it's also like a foundational strategy 
that can be consistent across the round. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think the, the best thing about knowing, and again, you don't have to be perfect with strategy, but at least having like a basic understanding of how to pick targets and clubs, the more you can remove decision-making on the course. Like when you play golf, you want to be as quiet mentally as possible. I want you like staring at the trees and talking with your buddies. And, and when you step up to it, you're like, I know what I'm doing here. Like, it's not this like total mess of like, Oh, I was hitting it bad on the first tee. Should I? No, it's like, I know this is my target and this is my club and I'm going to hit it. Um, so I think the benefits of, of buying into strategy and having a plan is that ultimately it removes a lot of indecisiveness because the decisions are already made beforehand. Like that, that is like course management one-on-one in my opinion. But in terms of reflection, I think a lot of golfers, like they play golf and I always tell people like all the clues to your game are hiding in your rounds. You just need to know what to look for. And as you said, play detective. So that's a great habit because I often tell people you can't get better at golf unless you're playing a lot of golf because there's a lot of learning that goes on in the course. And if you're not doing some type of reflection and detective work on what was making you uncomfortable with your ball striking, and then using that information on the range, like I call this like a feedback loop, you're not going to become a better ball striker. If you're not thinking about, well, where were my big mistakes this round? Were they strategic? Were they mental? Was it a ball striking thing? Like these are all things you need to uncover as you play more and reflect upon the round rather than just being like, Oh, I hit some good shots and some bad shots. And that was it again. Like this is a choose your own adventure type thing. Like you don't have to get this like cerebral and like deep into it, but like for the golfer who does really want to get better, like introducing like some of this into your game is helpful. You don't have to be like Matt Fitzpatrick and write down every single shot you've ever hit in your life and put it on an Excel spreadsheet. Like that's obviously the extreme of this, but there's a spectrum. And like, I just want golfers like, I think a lot of golfers are in like the low nothing part of the spectrum. And I want you like more towards the middle, like, all right, we're going to do some reflection. We're going to be a little bit more disciplined on target selection. And really that's what, like, when people ask me, like, what does my book and my video course have to offer? Like, that's it. I'm giving you that framework and you can pick and choose what parts you want. Yeah. But Ev, just because you're taking one more club, <laughs> second shots, doesn't mean you're going to be steering it. Right. Because that's no. the trap people get into. Right. And I think you've talked about that. Yeah. You know, just, you know, choke up a little bit, put a little back in your stance and make the same swing. But sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes finesse, that can, you got to know to John's point, you got to know that about yourself. Does having one more club make you feel less committed because you're afraid to hit it over? You know, like you well, got so, to be that'd be like some, yourself. That, that's when I show people like most golfers don't hit it over the green. So prove to me that you can hit it over the green first with a fully right. like full swimming, and then we can make an adjustment. So that's right. what I'm talking about. Reflection. Hit it on the screws first. Yeah. Right? You start yeah. airmailing half your greens. Great. Now we can reel it back. Like prove to me you could do that because I can guarantee you everyone listening to this, most of you are missing all of your iron shots short of the green. If you plotted them out during the round or used like Arcos or ShotScope or like Swing You, whatever app, like you're going to, when you see that information, you're like, oh, okay. Like then that, yeah. Seeing that is like, oh, oh, I, I can take more club and I can hit it like, and I'll be okay. Like that's powerful information. So last thing before we get to your video course, because I, we, you were nice enough to bring a code for part train listeners. We'll get to that in a second. It's par train gets you 20% off. We'll tell people where to find it. But first I want to end today just on, 
you mentioned it before and I've been wanting to get back to it for a second, not to end on a negative note, but I do think it's, <laughs> I do think That's it's okay. helpful for people that hear a plus two. I think we romanticize the plus and the scratches coming from a, you know, an eight standpoint where we think that you guys are just like, it's easy for you and you don't have any of the same struggles. I want you to end today talking about how you dealt with the shanks and that discomfort and how you brought back. I think when you're like really struggling in this game and it happens again, all relative to everyone, everyone's experience and skill level in this game. I think the thing that I like to lean on is that like nothing lasts forever. Like I would, at some point I just had to say like, okay, I hit a few shanks. Like I can get past this. I had the putting yips for a while. I changed my putter. I changed my way I held the putter. I got through it because eventually I was just like, you will get through this or I need to make some type of like different mental reference point. Just go about it completely differently. But yeah, I think just understanding that like this game does ebb and flow and like there's going to be some like lows and struggles and then your best round might be like just waiting around the corner. You have to be patient for it. So, I mean, I had the shanks in my first my first competitive round of golf in 15 years was a U.S. Open qualifier. This is like just when I started practical golf. <laughs> it's my first tournament back. And I went to the range and my buddy from college was caddying for me. I just start shanking like everything. <laughs> like, what's that? He just kind of looked what back at me. <laughs> He's like, I don't know what that is. Like, have fun with that, dude. And I like, go to the first team. Like these guys just like bombing like 320 yard drives i'm like oh my god what have i done like i don't belong here i think i shot 74 played great then shank one i'm like you just you just don't know like you can't like resign yourself to anything in this game like it it eventually it kind of ends for most of us and you get through it so yeah it sucks like i know there's a lot of people listening to this right now they're dealing with like i mean i I deal with like i have like borderline chipping yips right now i kind of laugh at myself when it happens Mm. like i'll i'll warm up and i'll like skull the first five chips I mean, whatever. <laughs> I'll get through that. I'll figure it out eventually. Yeah. Just kind of laugh at myself it's and tough. have to get through it's it. It's hard. Yeah. It's humbling. It sucks. Yeah. You I ever... mean, you watch like, you watch these pros on TV, like Lucas Glover. I just saw a clip of him. He's got horrible yips. Like he, he missed a like two and a half footer to get into the U S open the other day. And he had snapped out of that with the big yeah. win two years ago where Jarvis yeah. helped him. And now he's back. It's like, I know it sucks. Mm. We had Ward on our podcast. We talked about this and it's, yeah. it's brutal. Like, I don't know how other, other way to just like for the rest of us, we need to put it in perspective. That's the best thing I can do is like, I'm going to go home. My kids won't care. My wife won't care that much. Like whatever happened on the golf course, like technically like golf is my living. And like, this is what I, you know, this is my business, but like in the grand scheme of things, like it's not that big of a deal. Like that's, that's how yeah. I've gotten through a lot of this stuff. It's just like, it's kind of like this silly game we play. And like, the more you like grip harder and like try and control this stuff, like the longer these problems, like usually fester, in my opinion. You have, you ever, yourself. have you ever struggled as your audience and your book has done well and your audience has grown? Has it been harder for you to have that forgiveness or do you judge yourself that you're helping others and sometimes you feel like you can't help yourself? I've had a lot of situations over the last few years where I've had to play in front of people who, you know, read the book, listen to our podcast, follow me on Twitter, whatever. Um, 
I've gotten to a point, and I think this was the benefit of playing a lot of stroke play competition. Like there's nothing worse that that can happen to me than what's happened to me in tournaments. I've had horrible embarrassments. I just had one the other week and just shrugged it off. I missed an eight inch putt in front of half my club the other year um, where I thought it was like, I thought it was match play and it was stroke play. And everyone's like, oh my God, how do you do that? So like, I've had some like really big embarrassments. And you know what, if I go in front of some people who like, you know, are expecting a lot from me because of, you know, what I, what I do and the type of advice I give, like the first thing I say to them is like, I'm not above this. Like a lot of the advice I'm giving you is because of my own struggles and problems and I'm not perfect. So like, if you see me snap hook one or chunk a chip, like, you know, I'm not, I mean, I'm not playing on the PGA tour. Like I'm not that good. Yeah. I'm right so there then, with yeah, you. I, just, I, I try and put pretty, it like some pretty low moments. I've played so bad at Cypress point in front of a guy that listens to our show and invited me. Yeah. And it, happens. it happens to all of us, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, so John, that, I just it? put it, I put it in its place as best I can. Like, fortunately, like I, I do usually most of the time, like I'm so in my own zone when I play golf, whether it's in front of like a bunch of people in a club championship or in a tournament, like, I've kind of built this mental cocoon for myself that I can go to. And that's, yeah, taken me 20 plus years to do. But sometimes I just screw up and it looks dumb like everyone else. Tiger made a 10 on 12 at Augusta. It happens. Yeah. It's going to weigh on us at home. Sometimes my fiance, Shannon, says to me, I start staring off. She's like, what are you thinking about? I go, that decision on 16 today. (laughs) (laughs) And then you just, but then you learn from it, you reflect and you let it go. Yeah, well, we really, all like, I mean, it happens to every single person. So it's like, again, what's going to happen to me that hasn't happened to the person who's watching me? Yeah. yeah, it's pretty revealing. I meditate every morning now and my golf swing pops into my meditation, I would say 95% <laughs> of the time. Um, well, that's mindfulness, right? You cannot yeah, judge that coming exactly. into your mind. That's I okay. Have to you got to let it in. I got to let it in. You let so, it in. Before that's we let right. you go, I know we went a little bit over time. Um, let's talk to people about the new video series. I'm really excited about this. Thanks. You know, I've been asked by a lot of people, like, can, can you coach me directly? And like the way my business is set up, I I can't work with people directly. I just don't have the time. So essentially the video course is if, if you asked me to go in a room with you and kind of describe golf in a few hours and the topics that are in my book, expectation management, strategy, practice, and, and my version of the mental game. If you give me like three or four hours of your time, I will explain all this to you as if you and I are in a room together with some visuals and stuff like that. So that that's really what the course is. It's not me giving like swing demonstrations or it's, it's not that. And I make that very clear on the sales page. Like this is not a swing tips thing. It's very similar to the book, but a lot of people, you know, the book's 420 pages, the audiobook's 10 hours long. So I, I took the information and I condensed it So if it's someone who had read the book or listened to it, they can get it reinforced quickly. Or if you haven't read the book, then it's an opportunity to get most of the material and in far less time with like more visuals. Like there's stuff I can do on my computer with strategy that I did and and other stuff that I couldn't do in written or audio format. Um, So essentially it's like you and me are sitting in a room and I'm explaining golf to you. And at the end of it, you know, you'll have a few things that you can work on. And then there's some bonus material from other coaches that we did, but that's really what it is. It's, it's, it's a conversational like video course is the best way I can describe it. I love it. Love it. So tell people where to find it and code partrain gets them 20% off, right? 
Yes. Yes. So I made a separate website. It's fourfoundationsofgolf.com. F-O-U-R. I think I have the number four redirecting to that as well now that I remember it. But yeah, fourfoundationsofgolf.com. And you use, uh, as you said, code PARTRAIN gets you 20% off. So a little gift to your listeners. But yeah, it's been out for a month. We've had a ton of people go through it. Um, you could read some of the testimonials if you want to see what other golfers are saying about it. They're on the site. But yeah, it's just an opportunity to, if you liked some of the stuff I said on this podcast, it's more kind of organized and conversational like that. And there's six different modules in there that you go through. Love it. So in regards to, and obviously to follow you, John, it's at practical golf on Twitter at practical golf on Instagram. Anything that we've talked about today in regards to commitment, simplification, getting out of your own way that you want to reiterate and leave people with, or is there anything that we didn't cover that you think is important that people should know before we let you off the train? No, I, I think just my goal for everyone on some level is to what I want for all golfers, whether you're a beginner or advanced player is I want you to be on the golf course with very simple thoughts and a unburdened mind so that you can enjoy the game more. And more importantly, I think you can score better and, and take more ownership over things. And that's not easy to do. You have to work on that. Like you have to understand different parts of the game. You have to be committed to reviewing your rounds. And, and, and as you guys said, thinking about what was going through your head and looking for some patterns. But we are working towards simplicity. We're not working towards complexity. Um, I think that is, you know, is that the secret to golf? I don't know, but it's one of them, I, I believe. So that the more simple you can make this game, the more you can be like you are in other sports where you're just kind of reacting to a target versus standing over it, trying to guide and initiate it rather than just being like target. I kept saying that a few times. That's the way I play golf. Target, decide, hit, go. Not target, what's going on here? I just hit a horrible drive. Like that second hole was really horrible. That guy saw me top that drive. And like, <laughs> we know all the stuff that goes through I top my first drive at Toledo <laughs> last <Yeah>. week. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. You don't want to throw, um, up that so turkey, yeah. throw up that turkey sandwich, right? John? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> my goal, my goal for everyone is simplicity and that's, like you have to buy into that, I think. Like if, if that's your end goal, then it makes all the other stuff make sense, in my opinion. So yeah, that that's my and I think when you when you make things simple, you can be more committed, is my overall point. Yeah. Perfect. Well, I love when we come together because I think we're both trying to do similar things in very yeah, different absolutely. ways. And I love no, um, wonderful... every time you guys come on. So I appreciate you coming yeah, on, John. Is... Yeah, John. It's always a pleasure to see you. Yeah, this has been fun. Hopefully not the last time. Appreciate you guys giving me the shout outs on social media. Yeah. And thank you for doing what you're doing. Like, I think you guys are doing an awesome job, like, you know, getting people to enjoy this game and play better too. I think that's all of our, our, our common goals. Um, Cause we know sure. what it's like to struggle with it ourselves. Like we're, we're golfers. We get it. Yep. Well, thank you as always, John would love to have you back at some point to the take of the next topic we want to dig in on. Um, but yeah, everybody go check out his video series and four foundations of golf books. Awesome too. So Thanks, John. All right, thanks. Until next time, thanks, guys. Hey, guys, this is Evan. Real quick before you hop off the train, I got something for you. It's called The Train of Thought. It's our new email newsletter. Would you like to get one nugget, insight, or thought that we're pondering every week that could help keep you sharp and help your mental game? Go to thepartrain.com and subscribe to The Train of Thought newsletter today. It's really the best way to enjoy the ride. See you guys.